As we continue to worship God, please turn with me to Acts chapter 11. We will be in Acts 11 and 12 this morning. Three weeks ago, my wife and I became grandparents for the third time. And as part of this, uh, we had an assignment, which was to take care of a four-year-old and two-year-old while the parents went to the hospital to bring home baby number three. Now, it's been a while since we cared for a four-year-old and two-year-old. It's been quite a while. In fact, uh, the man you saw on the drums, when he was two years old, that's, that's how many years ago it was that we cared for. <laughs> now, because it, it was, has been a long time, uh, we got presented to us a spiral-bound instruction manual. <laughs> it listed everything. The time they woke up, the amount of time they would snuggle before breakfast, time to depart to preschool, and so on. Lunchbox, snack box, water bottle. I mean, we, we got it down in a day because there was an instruction manual. We became experts at this. Uh, we were also instructed in the use of car seats. You know, way back in time, it was pretty easy. One click and things were uh, easy to do. Uh, things have changed since then. You got to make sure that that chest harness clip is at the exact right level. In fact, we had a FaceTime with the parents and uh, they, they, they pointed out to us that the harness clip was not at the right level. It needed to be raised a little bit. So all of these things we learned. Uh, we learned a lot. It was education by immersion. We also learned why God gives us kids when we are very young. <laughs> now, what appeared to be a boring instructional manual came in very handy when we had questions. If we followed the instructions, everything would work just fine. Sometimes we think about the Bible as an instruction manual. Well, some of, our, some of it reads like it. In fact, a 25%, a quarter of it is discourse or teaching. Instructions for what we should do. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Very clear instructions. But about half of the Bible is narrative. Uh, there is history, there are parables. There are, uh, there are descriptions of specific people's lives. Uh, what is God telling us, or how is he revealing himself to us through these narratives? Generally, in the narrative, what are people doing? What is God doing in the narrative? What are people doing? What does God expect of people, and how do people respond? That, along with all of the details, kind of tells us or paints for us a picture of the ideal world in which God would want us to inhabit. Let me illustrate that. Take, for example, Genesis chapter 22, where we read about Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. The account starts with these words, after these things. And the question should be, after what things? Well, after all the things that Abraham had done and how he had lived following his call, which was in chapter 12. So for 10 chapters, we see a number of things in Abraham's life. He was called to leave his relatives and go where God was taking him. He was promised, among other things, that he would be a father to a multitude of nations. 
Now, he didn't quite believe that. He lied about his wife a couple of times. He decided to have a child with Hagar, their maid, because he still hadn't had a child with Sarah. How could he be a father of a multitude of nations if he didn't still have an heir and he was growing old? Which is what made him do what he did. He really didn't believe God. But in Genesis chapter 22, we read that God is testing Abraham. He asks him to sacrifice his son. Will he pass the test? Will he pass the test? And what we find there is he actually aces the test. He is willing to sacrifice his son, his only son whom he loved. Now you got to think, if that happened, how could he be the father of a multitude of nations? It wasn't a concern for Abraham. He trusted God by then. And he trusted God with all of the consequences of the sacrifice that God was asking him to make. So the picture that is painted for us with this narrative is the ideal world in which God wants us to inhabit. And what might that look like? A world in which we trust him to follow him in obedience regardless of whether we quite figure it out or not. It is a world where God is in control and he is accomplishing his purposes. A world in which we would ace the test when it comes to this question that God might ask. Do you really trust me to do what I'm asking you to do, even when you might not feel like it? Do you trust me that I love you, that everything I ask you to do is for your well-being and for my glory. Would we do that? That's kind of the world we're called to inhabit through this narrative. Now, the book of Acts is historical narrative, that which we have been going through for a few weeks. It is not an instructional manual. It is not a step-by-step -step instruction as to how to plant a church. Instead, it shows us what God did as he engaged a group of people to accomplish his purposes of growing the church and the good news of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. In Acts 1, we see Jesus saying that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So far, we have seen how the gospel has been spreading. In Judea, it went to Samaria, and last week, we saw how the Gentiles heard the gospel in Acts 10. Today we'll see how a church was planted in Antioch, in Gentile territory, and how God was accomplishing his purposes even in the face of persecution and even famine. But first, we see in chapter 11, the beginning, first section, chapter 11, Peter is trying to explain some things. Note that last week we saw how Peter had a vision, how he went to the house of Cornelius, and then he explained the gospel, and those who heard it trusted Christ. That's what we saw last time. Now, here in chapter 11, we find that some of his brethren have some issues with that. So turn with me to chapter 11. Let's go. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. That's when Peter went there to Cornelius' house. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him. 
They contended with him. They judged him. They really wanted to know what was going on here. And what was their concern? They said in verse 3, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, it's a reasonable issue that they have because in the last chapter, we saw Peter telling Cornelius, he said, it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with a Gentile. So this is a strange thing that I'm doing here while I come to your house. So it's a concern that people had. Perhaps those Jews who believed were concerned that their safety would be affected by those Jews who didn't believe because they, were, they had this interaction with the Gentiles. So what does Peter do? Verse 4. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. So he explains what he saw to these people who had a concern about what he did. He's trying to explain it in an orderly sequence. And then he says, in uh, verse 7 through 10, he says, I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, where did this voice come from? Well, verse 9 tells us, but a voice from heaven answered a second time. So the voice that Peter heard was from heaven. Kill and eat. But he's protesting in verse 8. He says, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But then this goes on three times, verse 9. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. So that's what happened. Peter is explaining to him. And verses 11 through 14 tells us what goes on next. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. So he sees the vision. There are three people coming from Cornelius' house to ask Peter to go to his house. Why? Because Peter would then have the words, the angel told Cornelius, Peter would have the words by which Cornelius could be saved. So verses 15 through 17. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. This was Peter going to Cornelius' house. And as he was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it did in the beginning. And verse 16, this is important. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now notice... In, verse, uh, in chapter 10, we had a description of what happened. And here, Peter is trying to explain to his brethren what happened. One of the major differences here that Peter is pointing out is, listen, I remembered the words of Jesus. How he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Peter is comparing what's happening and what's going on and his past experience with the words of Jesus. It's not that he just felt something and did something. He compares it with the words of Jesus. And verse 18 says, When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. 
So here is how Peter addressed the concern. He said, I saw a vision from heaven and a voice from heaven and the Lord's Spirit asking me to go. I saw what happened and it lined up with the words of the Lord. So you see how God is at work. He is orchestrating circumstances that are completely out of Peter's control. He is communicating and Peter is listening and following even though it doesn't quite make sense in his mind. And he's also thinking about what Jesus said. So, we participate in what God is doing when we listen to him and follow him. God gives us the privilege to participate with him in his glorious work. But it happens when we listen to him and follow him. Now that raises a question. How do you know whether a vision or a prompting you have is from God or not. I wish we had a gadget or a device that would tell us that, isn't it? But we don't have one. But here are a couple of questions we can ask ourselves when we think we have a prompting from the Lord. One, the first question we should ask is, are we living in fellowship with the Lord? What does that mean? Are we regularly hearing his word, doing his word? Are we spending time in prayer? Is, that a, is there a fellowship with God that characterizes our lives? That's the first question we can ask. And another question we can ask is, is this prompting we have, or this vision we have, is it contrary to what God desires compared to his word? Think about Peter. He remembered the words of Jesus as he observed some things happen. So is a prompting in any way contrary to what God desires? And the third question we can ask is, is this prompting moving us to do something that we really don't want to do? We really don't want to do, but it's moving us in that direction. In Peter's case, he was living in fellowship with God. He interpreted everything that happened through the lenses of the words of Jesus. And it was not something he wanted to do. So we participate in what God is doing when we listen to him and follow him. Verse 19, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking to the word to no one except to Jews alone. So many of them who scattered went and spoke to the Jews. But, verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So some of them decided to preach to the Greeks as well. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The hand of the Lord was with them. What is it about this hand of the Lord? What on earth does that mean? If we look through the scriptures, we find the references to the hand of the Lord. For example, the hand of the Lord is mighty and powerful. In Joshua chapter 4, we see how God dried up the Jordan River so that his people could cross it. And in Joshua 4.24, here's what we read. Why he did this. That all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord that it is mighty, that you might fear the Lord your God forever. So he did this, the Bible says, so that we may know the hand of the Lord is mighty, that people may fear the Lord your God forever. God's hand is mighty. We also see that the hand of the Lord might be dangerous if it's towards the enemies. 
In Exodus 9, God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go that they may serve me. And then he says, if Pharaoh refused, the hand of the Lord will come with severe pestilence on his livestock, horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. The hand of the Lord can be dangerous against enemies. The hand of the Lord also empowers his people. In the account of Elisha in 1 Kings 18, we read that he was able to outrun Ahab's chariot because the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. Hand of the Lord can be empowering as it is mighty. The hand of the Lord also helps his people. In Ezra 7, we read how Ezra found favor in the sight of the king. All his requests were granted. Why? Because the hand of the Lord was upon him. When God's favor rests, his hand rests on them and his purposes are accomplished. So here we see in verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. A large number because the hand of the Lord was with them. Verse 22, the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. So headquarters hears it and they send Barnabas off to Antioch. Something's happening here. Large numbers of people are coming to Christ. Let's go find out what's going on. And Barnabas gets there. So as Barnabas gets there, we find what he's doing. Verse 23, then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. So when, when he saw what was happening, he encouraged them. He said, abide in the Lord, remain true to the Lord, with purpose, a resolute heart. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit, and large numbers were brought to the Lord. Verse 24, he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Now, if we were asked to come up with a church growth strategy, what might that look like? Might say, well, we need to have some good preaching. Uh, we need to have good music. We might need some good children's programming. Maybe an engaging social media presence. I mean, that's typically how we would think about it. But what we see here is completely different. We have ordinary people preaching the Lord Jesus. Verse 20, they were not church leaders. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began preaching to the Greeks also. They are just ordinary people. We have the hand of the Lord being with them. We have a Barnabas who encourages them to stay focused, continue, remain in the Lord, abide in the Lord. And we know what Jesus said, if you abide in my love, if you'll abide in my love if you keep my commandments. So with this kind of numbers growth, what did Barnabas do? Well, verse 25 and 26. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So when Barnabas saw this church growth, the next step he did was go find Saul. Go find Saul so that he could come and then teach all these new believers. It was teaching for an entire year. It was not a 10-week discipleship course. It was an entire year of teaching. So the church growth did not end with just large numbers coming in. 
they were also seriously taught for a whole year, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So what was the church growth strategy? Ordinary people, living obedient lives, sharing the gospel, and trusting God with the results. Ordinary people, living obedient lives, sharing the gospel, and trusting God with the results. Doesn't sound very complicated, does it? It was pretty simple when God's hand was upon them and when he was accomplishing his purposes. Now, this is an act of faith. Because if we decide, ordinary people, live an obedient life, share the gospel, trusting God with the increase is an exercise of faith. Because God is the one who gives the numbers and the increase and the depth of growth, etc. Robert Morrison was born in 1782. He was just an average student, but he was a plodder by nature. He was persistent. He became a Christian when he was 15 years old and joined a prayer society that was meeting every Monday for prayer. By the time he turned 19, he felt that he'd really be happy only if he entered the ministry. So he started preparation. He started learning Latin. Soon he, he realized that he had a love for languages. He had a, an aptitude for languages. So he started thinking about missionary service. Now his mother was quite alarmed by that. She was not quite well. So Robert, young Robert, told her that he will be with her as long as she was ill. Well, a year goes by and then his mother dies. So young Robert at this point is free, so he applies to go to school, a preacher's college in London. Does that for a few years, then joins the London Missionary Society. And a few years further from that, in 1807, when he was at the ripe old age of 25, he boarded a ship. He boarded a ship and sailed to China. He was the first Protestant missionary in China, Robert Morrison. He was a plodder, so he plodded away. And it took seven years, seven long years, before he baptized his first convert. Seven long years before he baptized his first convert. So it's not that suddenly numbers grow, but this was the experience of a dedicated missionary. He persevered for another 18 years, seeing fewer than a dozen followers of Jesus. At the time of his death, there were very few native Christians in the Chinese empire. But he opened the door. And today, there are millions of Christians in China. Depending on the numbers and the sources, it could be anywhere from 25 to 100 million. Because of Robert Morrison, he didn't see large growth during his time, but his work had an impact down the line. It is said of William Carey, the father of modern missions who went to India, plodding away for many years. There were probably about 700 believers over the 41 years that he spent hard work in missions in India. Us ordinary people living obedient lives share the gospel. We sow and we water. God gives the increase. He accomplishes his purposes. So Paul has been teaching now for a whole year. What's the effect of the sound teaching? 
We see verses 27 through 30. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So here the disciples in Antioch were taught. They were taught well. They, became, they were called disciples and they were called Christians in Antioch. What they did was they sent a donation, a relief offering to their brethren in Judea. They were taught. The result was they had a love for God's people. And, 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 the, and the consequence was that they gave for the relief of the brethren in Judea. Now, what was the pattern of their giving? Was it a tithe? Was it 10%, 20%, 30%? No. What it says is, in proportion that any of the disciples had means, they gave. Proportionate giving. If I am blessed much, I give much. In fact, God instructs us. In, 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 in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we, we read about giving. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 16.2, um, Paul writes to them, on the first day when they gather, give as God has bless, blessed. Talks about proportional giving uh, in their gatherings. 2 Corinthians refers to giving to be a generous one. There's a generous nature of giving. He who sows sparingly reaps sparingly. In 2 Corinthians 7, uh, he says that giving must be very purposed, not grudgingly, not under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. So good teaching in the church results in the church being a blessing. Others are blessed, and this blessing in this particular case translated to a very generous, proportionate, voluntary, sacrificial and willing giving. That's what God calls us to do. That's his desire for us. That when we give, that it is generous, voluntary, sacrificial, and willing, and proportional as well as we just saw. So when we remain true to the Lord and his teaching, we grow in our love for God's people. We grow in our love for God's people when we remain true to, God's to the Lord's teaching. And giving is proportionate, generous, cheerful, and sacrificial. And here at Bayou City Fellowship, we believe that giving is an act of worship. After all, everything is, what we have is what God has given us. And what we give is only a small fraction, a token of his blessing on our lives. So we really believe that giving is an act of worship. Although we don't pass offering plates during the service, we have plenty of opportunities to give online or hard checks either way, and if you want any of those details, you can get them on the app or the website. So the church in Judea not only faces famine, but we see as we move along that it faces persecution as well. On the one hand, the church is growing, and on the other hand, there are difficulties, famine, and as we will see, persecution, chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church, in order to mistreat them. So this is back where in, in Judea, where Herod 
is now the king, and he wants to mistreat the Christians. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. And what did he do with Peter? Verse 4. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So that's what Herod wanted to do, to trouble the Christians, to persecute them. And verse 5, very important. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church. Prayer was being made fervently by the church. So while Peter is in prison and while there's persecution, what the church does is come together to pray. And then what happens in verses 6 through 10, we see an angel of the Lord shines a light, wakes Peter up, his chains fall off, he starts walking, the angel leads him out of the prison and out through the gates into the gates of the city and he keeps moving. And we see verse 11, when Peter came to his, himself, he kind of thought it was a dream as he was going out of the prison. He said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. God rescued him. He realized what God had done. And where did he go? Verse 12. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Many were gathered together and were praying. Again, we see that same thought. The church had gathered together to pray, and people were praying as there was persecution. And in 11 through 17, he goes on to explain what happened, how he was led out of prison, and how he landed up in their house. So the answer or the response to persecution is fervent corporate prayer. You would think that's kind of strange, but that's what we see with the church here. Fervent corporate prayer as an answer or response to persecution. And verses 20, and 20, 20 through 23, then we see that Herod dies a tragic death. He was struck by an angel of the Lord because he did not give glory to God. So here is what is interesting. Peter, who was imprisoned by Herod, was made free by the Lord. And Herod, who imprisoned Peter, dies the tragic death. And the only thing we read about here, about the people, is that they prayed fervently. Fervent corporate prayer. And then we read these wonderful words in verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. The word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied in the face of famine, in the face of persecution, and all that was happening. You know, nothing can stop the church. Nothing. No persecution, nor famine. God's purposes will always be accomplished, and he will always prevail. And he gives us a privilege to be part of this glorious plan that he has. Nothing can stop the church. Absolutely nothing. God is at work. But here is what he wants us to do. He wants us to pay attention to what he's saying 
to hear and do, just as Paul did and just as the Christians at Antioch did. Pay attention to what God is saying, hear and do. He also wants us to share the gospel, just like the ordinary believers did who went to Antioch. He also wants us to pray fervently, just like the church in Jerusalem did. That's his call. That's what he wants us to do so that we can participate in this glorious work that he's doing as he accomplishes his purposes and his will here on earth. Thank you, Lord, for your word that encourages us. As simple as it is, we recognize how hard it is to do. Thank you for your word that enlightens us. Thank you for your word that awakens us. Thank you for your word that establishes us as we are weak. And thank you for your word that confronts us. We pray that you'd make us a people who delight to follow you. Follow you as we pay attention to you. Follow you as we share the gospel. And follow you as we pray fervently. So that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for the privilege you give us to be your children. Help us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We do have a time of response, a time of prayer. So as the prayer team would come forward to the right and left of this podium, if you have a particular prayer need, I would encourage you to come forward. Uh, our prayer team members will be more than happy and will be delighted and consider it a privilege to be able to pray for us. It might be a particular need. Uh, it might be an item of praise. It might be something you're struggling with in terms of decisions, perhaps. It's always good to pray, to come boldly to the throne of grace, where, where alone we will find help in time of need. Come and pray.